it's really important to me that the dead and the living can coexist in one space at Brompton Cemetery. I'm really glad that people come and they don't see it as a place of death. The Quick and the Dead, part two, the dead. That's where I'd like to be buried in a vibrant place. I don't want to be buried in a horrible place that no one's allowed to go in. So if a relationship's between two people and a relationship generally go on in the imagination, there's no reason for that to stop because somebody's died. There's 200,000 dead Londoners in Brompton Cemetery and we're going to join them one day. We're going to be dead Londoners. Can you see our faces dimly reflected in the stones? To see the dead kind of laid out, it just communicates so much in such a graphic way. I am an expert in dying. Once you stop breathing, it's very hard to come back again. You know that somebody's buried there, right? If you dwell on it too much, you almost feel like your head's gonna explode. I got to the hospital five minutes after he'd actually died, mainly because um, Virgin trains were delayed. I remember the sort of night I was going my way to on the train. Good morning and welcome customers who've just boarded this service. This is the delay 1020 Virgin Pendolino. And there's service. an announcement, you know, as there always is, like saying, we're sorry this train's delayed. It hasn't caused you any inconvenience. And I thought, yeah, I've just missed my dad's death by five minutes. No one is truly dead until the ripples that they create in this world die away. We are sitting by my daughter's grave, which we normally refer to as Pip's spot. It's underneath a holly tree and it's down in the southwest corner of Brompton Cemetery. And this was the spot where I walked past with Pip and my husband the day that she was on her way in labour. So it's a really special place for us. It's, it's kind of serendipitous that this is where she's buried. And this was the, the place that we were offered. Um, it's a really quiet, <laughs> It's a, not always a quiet, but an often secluded part of the cemetery. Um, and it's a really peaceful place to come and reflect. This is Louise Westmoreland, and I'm Laura Mitchison. We meet the day after Pip's birthday. So it was 2016 that she was born. She was born in and died almost exactly the same day. This is a photograph album of, it's, and again, it sounds very strange, doesn't it? But it's the funeral of my little girl. Um, and inside it, 
there's a little postcard with some poems on that we used for the funeral and we gave them to friends as well just as a little memento I mean when you go to a, one of the things I always remarked on uh, about funerals especially of someone who's older is that you always come away finding out something new about them unfortunately in Pip's case th there's none of that really there were no birthday parties there were no um, first days at school so so this is what we have instead um, and that's her tiny little casket covered in flowers and uh, that's the picture of our Robin friend <laughs> who came to say hello he's adorable <laughs> yeah well it's it's crazy I mean there are Robins all over the place in Brompton but when we were just wrapping up the ceremony a Robin came and was really quite bold very brave and came and we were all just looking at him <laughs> taking photographs but again it just seemed kind of magical um, so yeah <laughs> Sorry, it's a bit oh, heavy, no. isn't it? No, it's it's. I just yeah. I can't imagine how it <laughs> Don't must worry have been for you guys. Be honest about. I mean, it's it's an experience that you wouldn't want anybody to have to go through. Empathy. We all think that it's really important but I wonder whether we're capable of real empathy. How can I empathize with a couple who have lost their child? How can I? I can try to conceive of what that might be but I can't really empathize with it and I think if I did that would get in the way of me doing the job I need to do which is partly to be practical, to give sympathy, to give support, and to try and structure a ceremony that has some meaning in this awful, tragic act of the universe in taking away a child. I'm Phil Walder from Humanist UK. I've known Brompton for a lot longer than I've been doing this role. And I've known it as, as an oasis of calm and a lovely place to go and walk and contemplate and chat. I do think that cemeteries and graveyards, they are a, a kind of social history laid out in stone. I mean, we all do it, don't we? You go past and go, oh, I wonder if they're related to them and so on. They're fascinating places. I'm just the person who does the funeral, really. I see myself as a conductor in both senses of that word. You're there to conduct a ceremony in the way that a conductor of an orchestra runs things. But you're also a conductor in the way that a lightning attenuator is a conductor to take people's emotions and ground them for them. I remember one of my trainers said to me, don't steal their grief. And it's a very, very good piece of advice because you kind of embarrass yourself when you tell yourself that I'm stealing somebody else's grief. When you're standing, you know, 
by the side of the grave here at Brompton or anywhere, the intensity of that grief right in front of you, as you, you say to them, we're now going to return her to the earth from which she came, and they start to lower that coffin. It's the most intensely emotional moment. And they gather around and drop earth or a rose into the grave, and they are completely distraught. If you allowed yourself to get too close to that with them, you'd be in tears with them and that isn't any help at all. When you get trained to be a humanist celebrant, you're told not to be a bereavement counsellor, but of course you really are. It's certainly part of that bereavement process because what we do is what everybody else is kind of avoiding doing and that's we're going and say tell me about your loved one I want to talk about your loved one it is a cathartic experience for the bereaved and it's a wonderful privileged experience for us sitting there I mean we're we're kind of we're the only biographers most people ever have I'm interested in people. And Brompton Cemetery, I see all kinds of people using the cemetery. I haven't got a dog, so I'm not walking a dog, but many are. And I always whistle to them. <laughs> and then they leave their master and they come to me, which sometimes annoys the masters, but you know, they come to me. My name is Lieve, like to believe, so believe in me. I work as an actor, performer, singer, a dancer, and I'm none of these really. I should probably say, as we are doing a thing about cemeteries, I am an expert in dying. <laughs> I've done a play quite a long time ago, and the guy who was the director who taught me how to die <laughs> in style. So I've been an expert on dying. So when I will really die, maybe people won't believe it. Or I might not believe it myself. Who knows? I might think it's a rehearsal for the real thing. <laughs> if I think of uh, Brompton Cemetery, there are famous people in here. There is here the grave of Richard Tauber. He, uh, he ended up here because he was persecuted by the Nazis, as many people did. But um, his songs are jolly. Uh, I remember one which is Heute ist der schönste Tag in meinem Leben. Er ist der schönste Tag, ich bin verliebt, etc., etc. <laughs> We have the grave of Emmeline Pankhurst. When I pass it, I always say hello, <laughs> never get a response, but I like the stone. The stone is so stylish and it's straight and upright. And I think, yes, you were straight and upright. That's good. You know, you still stand there. We know what you've done and we're proud of you. And so, you know, that grave 
expresses it, I would almost say. We are singing the protest songs and we are standing by the tomb of Emmeline Pankhurst. You will always see flowers at her tomb in the colors that means white, purple, green. White, it is purity. Green is hope. And purple or violet is dignity. It's an acronym, Give Women Vote. And it's not just now, it will be year-round. And there are other graves with flowers as well, you know. It's not a dead cemetery, if you understand what I mean. It doesn't really make me think about death. When I walk through a cemetery I, like this, I, it doesn't. I don't have kind of mournful reflection. I don't start calculating how many years I've got left to live or anything like that. But I think that's because I haven't quite reached the age where I've sort of accepted that I'm mortal at all. I, I don't have the sort of graveside spot of, of like a departed sort of best friend or something. I mean, one of my earliest, and this sounds bizarre, is... Uh, the death of Blackie that was my parents' cat. My best friend had just come round to play. I mean, we were only about five or six. And the cat was quite a vigilant cat and it had gone out and it liked to monitor the traffic coming in and out of the drive. And my best friend's father just ran it over, crushed it, squashed it, and it was dead. And I always remember two of my parents' friends who'd come over from Nice, I think, um, seemingly to have a nice cup of tea and they ended up just digging the grave for Blackie in the driving rain. <laughs> and it's a turn of events they didn't anticipate. And, and that had quite a big impact. So I think so. the, the death of pets can be really affecting. Every night's like a little death, isn't it? You know, you're suddenly dreaming. When you're in the dream, you're in completely in it. You know, it's happening, isn't it? It's reality. So Maybe it is like that, actually. That's quite a good analogy, isn't it? I mean, and then you wake up to something else. I mean, who knows what? Or you dream just continues somewhere. Let's just hope it's a quite a good one. I mean, you don't want to get stuck in Sainsbury's with your trousers off for eternity. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not... Or, or Lidl's, even worse. <laughs> it went in front of the real coleslaw aisle. <laughs> That's right. Terrible shame. Yeah. Hi, I'm Stephen Coates, I'm a musician and uh, latterly I would describe myself as a curator, an arts curator or an arts producer. When people die, you imagine them as like, if there is an afterlife, carrying on as they were just before they died. But of course, my dad didn't feel like a 70-odd-year-old guy in bad shape inside. He probably felt like a much younger person inside, like we all do, right? In some way, I see him much more these days as just a guy, you know, a guy who was once a child and a teenager, you know, as a sort of 14-year-old boy, which is probably, you know, maybe he, that's how he felt a lot of the time, rather than stumbling up the hill with a kind of walking frame. As a, you know, he's not going to spend the rest of his the eternity as an old man, is he? He's going to be how he saw himself.
So Pip, your baby girl, died on the 12th of July 2016. Has your relationship with her changed since then? Um, my relationship with her, it's really hard to describe. Sometimes I feel like I'm kind of losing touch with her and that she's just becoming a collection of artefacts or a place. Her grave is under a tree, which means it doesn't get a lot of light and it doesn't get a lot of moisture because the tree's gulping all of the water out of the ground. And I would come and visit and I would always stress out about the planting and that I would want something different and I would start to get angry with myself because um, the main thing is that I'm there to, to be with my daughter and I would lose, I would struggle, I would lose touch with her, too busy thinking about making her grave right to spend time thinking about her. Yeah. Yeah. Being somebody who has somebody special buried here, it could be easy to become territorial, but I just think I really love the fact that people use this for whatever they want and the fact that this is a, a living place. I think it's really cool that people walk their dogs here or teach their kids to ride a bike. It's exactly what everybody should use the place for. When the cemetery was conceived, the idea was that people would come here for leisure time, come to take the air. And I really, really like the fact that that's come back to Brompton. Brompton, I mean, it, it's calming. Uh, we walk through it in the crepuscular light, as the light was fading away and dying, which seemed quite in sync with the mood of the place. I'm Dr. Matthew Green. Uh, I'm a writer, historian, and sometimes broadcaster specialising in the history of London. Do you always say doctor? Without uh, a second thought, yeah. Even to your mum? Especially to my mum. <laughs> Cemeteries, they're no longer kind of places apart. They're very much suspended in the bustle of everyday life. That was also true to some extent in the Middle Ages. Particularly in London, you could just be walking down a street, there'd be some people selling hot beef pies and bread, and you might walk past a gallows, and then you might suddenly find yourself in a graveyard. They only really became walled off in the sort of 18th and 19th centuries. When London churchyards were literally bristling with corpses. Body parts lying around. You can imagine the stink would be awful. It'd be horrifying, actually. There would be dead cart men on their rattling carts, just sort of saying, like, bring out your dead. And the bodies would be sort of lowered down or thrown down or left on the doorstep. And they'd be taken to these frightful holes in the ground and then just swallowed by the earth. One Italian chronicler said it was like a macabre lasagna, but instead of like layers of cheese or whatever lasagna, it was layers of dirt between the bodies. So quite right, the city authorities decided something had to be done. It was a health hazard, but also I think it was a human tragedy, you know, to see the dead in this way. So they put a huge amount of money and infrastructure into building these seven cemeteries. Brompton's one of them. In contrast to that sort of apocalyptic horror of the inner London churchyard, these were going to be places that were a bit like heaven. They were gardens, so I think that metaphor, the garden of sleep. Where the deceased are resting for eternity and dreaming. 
cemeteries became calmer places and there's always trees with, with sort of like luscious leaves pouring over the graves, almost like a sort of duvet for the dead. It's nice to be in a quiet, contemplative place like Brompton. And if you are surrounded by graves, of course you tend to think about the people that you've lost. And it's a beautiful place to do that. If it's nothing else, it's a great place to sit and think. There is no reason to assume that death's going to be a bad thing. I mean, it might feel like love. It might be the most amazing thing when you actually go. I am an expert am in dying. Expert Once in you dying. stop breathing, dying. it's very hard to come back again. I mean, my attitude to death is very simple. I mean, when you die, you die. I want a party, I think, with my favourite songs, my favourite people, everyone just to get drunk, and then a kind of a PowerPoint presentation of my finest hours. I'm giving my course to science. They will cut me into little steaks and do whatever they like, but I will serve people. Tell me about your loved one. I want to talk about your loved one. And then this little girl put her hand up and she goes, is he inside the box? And I was like, yeah, he's, he's in the box. And this other girl goes, is he dead? Is he really dead? Once you stop breathing, it's very hard to come back again. Is he inside the box? There's a time machine in Brompton Cemetery. What's not to like about that? Seemed absolutely incredible. A dream, but a pleasant one. For the garden in which we found ourselves was beautiful and summery and inviting. At some distance, we could see a large, imposing building, always quiet and peaceful, almost too much so. And the sense of strangeness of incredible strangeness sent a shiver up my spine. It's got a pyramidical roof. It's decorated with Egyptian motifs. It's quite somber looking and it's placed at a junction of paths in the cemetery. It's got a big locked door on the front and it looks big enough for about five or six people to be standing inside. And then a door opens in the imagination of H.G. Wells. It's the setting for his story, The Time, time machine. machine. Yes, my friend, a time machine. This thing, this very thing. This contraption, this framework made of quartz and bronze, ivory. It's probably the biggest, most imposing structure in Brompton Cemetery, built in the middle of the 19th century. It is the tomb, the reputed tomb of Hannah Courtois and two of her daughters. But the reason that I and other people became interested in it was because rumours have been circulating for a long time that in fact it wasn't just a mausoleum, that it was a time machine, or contained a time machine. And there was a lot of supporting evidence for that, including things like there was no plan for the mausoleum, which is unusual for a structure of that size, and of course the key had disappeared. Uh, so the veracity of whether it contained the time machine couldn't be tested. And then, of course, it was reputed to have been designed by Francis Bonamy. he's an artist, and he travelled through Egypt at the time when they were uh, uh, decoding the hieroglyphics for the very first time. It was very, very exciting. 
time for kind of English people to go and travel in Egypt and he's sketching all these things and um, he kept sending sketches back to London and uh, London was kind of going crazy for Egyptology and they had it on their lampshades, they had it on their sofas and their dresses. Working in then there's this guy called Samuel Warner, Warner, a Victorian inventor, allegedly the inventor of the teleportation. Flying bomb, and which he tried to sell for £22,000 to the British government. £22,000 and this is, you know, a long time ago. He even did this demonstration of kind of, he called it a psychic torpedo. torpedo. Yeah, yeah. You could say a teleportation bomb, but in fact, psychic torpedo is probably nearer because it seemed to be through willpower that it was done. Yeah. So, so anyway, that these guys had got together and, and for their own different reasons, they wanted to create time machines. So Bonamy wanted to create one because he wanted like the fruits of what the ancient Egyptians had worked for all this time to come into fruition and for it to be a real thing and Warner wanted to make money. Time is only a kind of space. If we can move about in all the other dimensions of space, why not in time, too? It's impossible, out of the question. You shall have proof, my friend. How? Just climb on. You mean right now? Right now. Eventually, um, Warner just decides he's, he knows it's ready, and he's like, right, I'm going to go and make it work, and he puts himself into this tomb, and he ends up getting uh, turned into a mummy and being uh, sent around time and space for all eternity. <laughs> Look, right there. Oh, they're locked. Break down the door. How? How can we? Here. It's more. Oh, no, it's, it's no good. They're solid. We'll never break through. Never. No. Never. We got me through here. Stay here. All our lives. We never go home again. So that's kind of how the story ends. And all the stuff's still in there, all, you know, his electrical equipment, all his, you know, amulets, all his spells that he'd written around the edge, everything like that, it's all still in there. And this is why, you know, you need to keep watching it and this is why it's dangerous and this is why it's locked and he took the key and he threw it away and no one must ever go in there. Joseph Bonamy's buried here, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And on his gravestone, which is very modest, there is various Egyptian symbols, and one of them appears to be Anubis sitting on top of what looks like the courtoy mausoleum and looking towards it. But Anubis in the in the drawing is facing in the opposite direction to which he's usually depicted, and that's said to represent a soul lost in time. On Bonamy's grave, just below the symbol of Anubis, there's an inscription in memory of four children who were taken from this life into a better in the Easter weekend of 1852. So all four kids died of whooping cough. It's no wonder he wanted to escape the four walls of the present. Cemetery is a great place to time travel. In fact, one of the reasons for suggesting that this is the place to put a time machine is that the London cemeteries have remained largely unchanged in the last 150 or 60 years. If you want to put something in a city and make sure that it's going to stay there, a cemetery like this is a great place to do it because it's not going to get developed by property developers, generally speaking. You know, it's preserved or conserved in the way that Brompton has been. You dress like it's the 1970s. 
Reading R.D. Lang in Brompton Cemetery. Brompton Cemetery and other cemeteries that I've been to, but Brompton is particularly beautiful. Every time I come, I'm struck by what happy feeling place it is. It kind of almost makes me feel a little bit better about the fact of mortality. If you can come to somewhere that's kind of so crowded with dead people and it to be really, really beautiful. It was so beautiful this morning. This place has n never been somewhere that makes me unhappy. This is, it's actually like one of the places where I feel like at home. Like a piece of my heart is here. In the dead, we heard Vanessa Wolfe, who told us about the time machine, as did Stephen Coates, Lever Cochon, Phil Walder, Matthew Green, and Louise Westmoreland. Obviously, I'm pregnant again. <laughs> Took a little while, but now I'm expecting twins. I'm having a boy and a girl. It's scary. Uh, it's very scary but we're trying to remain positive about everything and they're moving. <laughs> um, we really, really look forward to bringing them here to spend time, yeah. The oral historian, presenter and producer is Laura Mitchison with co-production and sound design by Steve Urquhart. The music is mostly by Rev Bajeld, except for Bone Dreams Blood by Stephen Coates of The Real Tuesday Weld. That's what's playing right now. The Quick and the Dead is supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the contributions of National Lottery players. The production assistants are Oliver Morris, Simon Rowe, Charlie Bond, Joanna Sveikeka, Zoe Luisos, and Andrew Finch. The Quick and the Dead is an on-the-record CIC production for the Royal Parks. Attention, attention. This area is now closing. Please make your way to the nearest available exit or as directed by members of staff. Attention, attention. This area is now closing. Please make your way My friend, it's time. You've got to go to the gate as quick as possible. We are going to lock you in.